the Provoke Media Intersection series brought to you by Provoke Media and Pray Tell with production support from Marketeers. Welcome to Intersection. This is a video and podcast series that Provoke Media has embarked on with Pray Tell in which we invite guests to have an open conversation about the ways that creativity, media, and technology intersect with DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion to transform behavior and norms. I'm Arthi Shaw, I'm executive editor for Provoke Media and I'm the host for this series. Um, this is the fourth in the series. Part one featured um, an author and University of Texas professor, S. Craig Watkins. Part two featured the ACLU CCO, Becky Edwards. And part three was a conversation with Maeve Duvali of Goldman Sachs. So we'll um, link to those fantastic conversations in, in the show notes below. Um, today we have with us S. Mitra Kalita, who is currently SVP at CNN, where she oversees national news, opinion, and programming for CNN Digital. Um, she also has a long history working in newsrooms, including the Wall Street Journal, the LA Times, Dow Jones, Quartz, Newsday. Um, I'm probably missing a few um, Newsdays where um, where I where I where I met you, um, Mitra. Um, I was I was an intern starting my career, and I think you were um, you were covering the immigrant community, and I think you did a lot of fantastic work on the back of um, September 11th as well. Thank you. Um, was I nice to you? Did what? Was I nice to you? <laughs> yes, yes. You know, you know, I, I so looked up to the kind of work that you were doing because you were writing about, about, about the immigrant community um, and its impact on New York City. And then I think right after 9-11, I think, you know, I, I remember following your, your byline really closely. So I, I you know, I, I think you had just graduated from Columbia or something. Yeah, I, you're I, right. You're right. I mean, we were probably like starting out our careers together because uh, I was a Newsday intern the summer before 9-11. So, oh. and yeah, 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 yeah. So it's just interesting how when you start your career, though, someone who's a year ahead is like, like light, you know, it might feel totally. like light years ahead, yes. but it all evens oh, out. As, right, as because yeah, at that point. You know, when someone's in grad school, when you're still an undergrad, that just feels so like you're so much older than me. Right. And then, yeah, and then, and then I, and then I actually, I wasn't, I had still had a year of school left. And then I went and did a internship at North in North Carolina, and then I just went to Europe for a little while. So, <laughs> so I kind of took a I took a meandering view um, route. So um, we also have with us um, Stefan Embry, who is VP of Brand Allyship at Praytel. So welcome. Hello. Thank you. So, um, so you know, I want to start with the news that uh, Mitra, that I think you, you you announced a few weeks ago, that you are leaving CNN after the election, and I want to kind of go there first and ask you kind of what drove that decision and kind of what what you're doing next. Sure. So I think like a lot of people, uh, the pandemic has forced me to ponder what am I doing with my life and what am I doing for the rest of my life and what purpose am I bringing to work every day? And I think um, there, in so many ways, my entire career in mainstream media, which has been about 25 years now, I can think of no greater purpose and amplification of that purpose that I've shown up with every day than at CNN. Right. It is um, the largest news organization on the planet. And my job specifically on the digital side was the ability to shape, um, you know, the world's most powerful homepage and the news agenda every morning, every afternoon, every night, every minute. Right. So I feel really um, fortunate as I was looking for kind of that as I was going through that exercise um, for the last few months. 
Concurrently, though, I think you can't look at um, a few other effects of the pandemic and not say, is there something greater I might be able to contribute to this? And there's specifically two areas that have collided uh, for me. One is in my own community and how we define community. And um, of course, over the last few years, there's been a lot of lament around the death, if you will, of local news or the decline of local news or, you know. And um, so I've watched this trend with, um, sadness, interest, and also just wondering, is there another way? And the other uh, pillar of my thinking, of course, is uh, the reaction after the death of George Floyd. And as someone who'd spent most of her career in, in media organizations, fighting for diversity, fighting for doing the right thing, um, kind of showing the evidence of diversity and inclusion being a necessary part of our business and the future of our business, um, these twin forces really compelled me to say, might I be uniquely positioned to try something else, but also try my hand at these two things talking to each other? And so I leave CNN on I'm really proud. I leave on really good terms. Um, but for what I'm trying to create, it's really rooted in the notion of community, and I would argue almost many communities. Um, and there's a, there's a few things I, I can talk about, but organically, we had launched a newsletter to help our neighborhood of Jackson Heights, uh, which was hardest hit by the pandemic, uh, arguably in the world, if not the country, right, our zip code. Um, is one of the hardest hit um, in the country. And so there were exercises I was going through at the same time that um, journalism was pondering objectivity, the view from nowhere. And we were talking a lot about defining journalism and what our role as journalists was. And I just worried that the absence of us being good neighbors and supporters of our own communities was... Um, remarkably avoid in that debate. And I thought, can I do something um, in this space? So there's more to come on what I'm actually trying to build, which I'll save for when I leave CNN, uh, which is right after uh, the election. Uh, but I think that gives you a sense of the community piece of it. And of course, diversity is woven into everything we do. It's not additive in any way. If anything, it's fundamental to our mission. Um, but it's also this idea of overlapping communities. And in a place like Queens, you can't cover Queens and think of it as local news because, of course, this is the place where the world meets, right? So for me, it's really important that my definition of what I'm building is expansive, inclusive, and global in its outlook. You know, when you were talking about the community piece and, you know, how you're kind of seeding um, what, what you're doing next um, without giving too many details, um, is, it, is it building on epicenter which you you know which is the, the newsletter that you launched um mm -hmm. to help your community get through the pandemic is it building on that or is it separate from that no i think it's building on that i mean i can i could tell you some examples of how we've been um working through it to kind of give you a taste of what i mean about overlapping communities and um, our approach to coverage um so the newsletter literally exists to uplift a community and that might sound um 
basic, as my 16-year-old uh, would say, uh, except that I think the notion of uplifting your people and loving your people is a bit of a revolution in journalism, right? It's a revolution in something that attempts to be objective on why you're telling a story. Um, I also try to be super action-oriented in each of the newsletter items. Um, so what can I do with this information um, versus something exists and thanks for telling me I don't understand its application to my life, right? So those are some of the principles that we've set out just again in a pretty small community newsletter, but those principles I think are um, different from how people like you and I might have learned journalism in journalism school, yep. right? Yep. Um, and sort of this, this user-centric behavior that I think a lot of companies who are listening might be like, of course, that's, we're all about our customer. We're all about our user. That's how good businesses run. I, I, I do fear that uh, some of the kind of post-World War II journalism that's been created, again, like the notion of both sides and AP style and inverted pyramid and all these um, methods and formulas, if you will, um, don't really show up in the journalism that I'm committing, at least in my community, and admittedly, knowing them as well as I do has everything to do with why I feel uniquely positioned to break those same rules. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I even very early in my career, I remember being really frustrated by that and, and thinking that the full story wasn't being told um, when you're adhering to these rules. Um, by the way, speaking of community, I thought it would be to, interesting to just take a quick moment to see kind of where everyone is sort of coming at this conversation from. So you're, you're in Jackson Heights, which is in Queens and in New York. Um, Stefan, you're a former New Yorker. Where did you live when you were in New York? Former New Yorker, New Yorker, lived in Harlem, so I, I feel akin to, to your um, to your Queens uh, upbringing. I uh, currently live in Austin, Texas, though, so very new perspective for me. <laughs> and and I'm coming at this from from the Bay Area, um, in San Francisco. So um, and, and I'm actually oh, we got the whole country covered. We have the whole country, and I, I, <laughs> I I've lived in I lived in New York, and I lived in Texas, so I feel like I'm actually from Texas, so I feel a connection to both of these places. So, you know, I, I want to go back to this idea of, of, of objectivity. We, we, um, we, just, we just had a, our, our global conference, and one of the questions that we asked, I'll, I mean, the name of the panel was, does the, dusty cloak of does the dusty cloak of journalistic objectivity mask the truth about racial injustice? And, and our, panels very, our panelists very much felt that the, the standard of objectivity actually mutes black voices and, and voices from marginalized communities. And you've already touched on this a little bit, but do you want to dig a little deeper into what the issues are with the sort of standard of, of, of objectivity? So I think, um, I, I think there's, there's actually two pieces of that. One is the standard, which raises the question of whose standard, right? Mm -hmm. Who gets to decide that something is news or something is um, going to be elevated, right? How, how do we determine that? Now, there's kind of a standard uh, formula that most of us who come of age in journalism, uh, most people have gone through this. If you've worked in a small market, 
um, or even if you've worked as I started my career at the Associated Press, speaking of AP style and our stories and the inverted pyramid. Um, and you start your morning by calling the police department, right? You'll call and say what came in overnight, right? Mm -hmm. And and then you take the reports and you decide which ones rise to the level of being news, right? And so I think even that action in some ways has seeded a standard to the authorities. And so in this moment, do we ask, well, what about the people who wouldn't call police to report wrongdoing? What about the people who did call police, but there was a version of events that were the police's version of events versus a more 360 holistic view of what happened, right? And as you know, and as we've seen over, um, not just the last few months, but you know, last few years, maybe even decades, journalism's job in many ways is to truth squad that version of events. And yet, when we rely on that first version as our initial crack at telling you what the news agenda for the day is, have we given undue importance to the messenger, right? Have we taken the police account as the account that actually ends up winning because you know, anyone who's fact-checked over the last four years will tell you the initial lie gets more attention than the correction of the record, right? Mm -hmm. And so how do we reconcile knowing how audiences consume lies and truth and the distortion kind of in between and, and how stories are complicated? Um, what standard does that leave, with, leave us with except to say, well, that's not a standard that I can accept, that's not a standard that I wanna work within, right? right? So I think that's just um, another revolution that is happening in newsrooms around the country, right? The way that I came of age in journalism is being challenged rightfully uh, by external forces, right? The narrative being rethought and corrected and internal forces, a generation that's like, no, 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 that's not how we want to uh, create our news agenda. And then the other piece is objectivity, which is the removal, literally uh, above a story. And, um, you know, with the advent of the internet, I hate to sound so old, uh, but with, with um, the information um, rise of the last uh, few decades, we've actually seen an absolute inversion of being above a storyline, right? Mm -hmm. We've seen that the best content is grassroots. The nature of virality, something that spreads is because it's authentic, it's rooted in community, it's rooted in emotion. And that's at odds with the objectivity that journalists tried to create in um, kind of being above it all. And so I, I think that you're rightfully asking you know, is this a cloak and we're removing it and we're like, wait, wait, we don't like what we see. Um, how do we get closer to the grassroots? And that's exactly what I'm trying to solve for. So I, I love that you brought up the police example because that is actually what came up in, in our panel, which which featured um, Wesley Lowry from, from CBS News. And, you know, one of the things that was said was that for, the long, for a long time, you know, the media sort of took the accounts of the police as sort of ordained truth. Like, and, and I even remember early in, or in my career when I got the police beat, um, yeah, I mean, you, you got the official police record, you spoke to someone at the department, and that was sort of the, the, the truth. 
Um, and then of course the rise of cell phones and body cameras means that you know, we have to assess some of these assumptions that we made about police accounts. And um, you know, so, so what does this mean though for instances in which we don't have independent evidence? Like there isn't a cell phone camera, like is this, are, are newsrooms shifting the way that they are looking at things like police accounts or, and it doesn't have to be limited to just police, like anytime you get sort of an official report, um, do newsrooms have the tools to kind of assess these things so that they're not just being stenographers and actually like, you know, using, you know, being journalists? Yeah, it's a great question. And I would, I would say that at CNN, uh, one of the things I'm grateful for is that we've been actively having these conversations uh, even before George Floyd, but definitely in the aftermath of that among our standards and uh, legal divisions, just to say, hey, do we need to take a pause on reporting certain things? Do we need to tell the audience as much what we don't know as what we do know, right? What is the place of transparency in our reporting during an evolving news story? And I would actually argue that broadcast journalism is better suited for this, right? The nature of 24-7 cable news um, is actually in some ways, ironically, the answer because it's a much more iterative approach to storytelling, right? If you think about you know, 40 years of CNN, the anchor is literally getting information as it's coming in. It's vetted, of course, but it's coming in. The nature of other mediums, um, newspapers comes to mind, you know, we give you the the paper of record, as, as, as they say, we give you that record, and it just happens to be 5 p.m. when reporters want to go home and they file their stories and they run in the paper the next day. So it's kind of for our convenience versus the, and this is what I mean about getting more user-centric, right? Mm -hmm. um, is that the best way to inform users of an evolving storyline? And yet, uh, is, isn't there a kind of a somewhat complete version of events that we want to give them because you can't just expect people to be glued, as many of them are, I assure you, to their televisions for 24 hours a day in this news cycle. So I've been really um, trying to innovate around formats. I've been trying to figure out what's the messaging that has journalism feeling like we are more firmly holding the hands of our users. And then the last thing I'll say on this is how do we actually defer to our users? How do we say, especially in my community in Jackson Heights, this community knows way more than I do as the chronicler of the community, right? This community could tell me where to get the best coffee, where to find help if you don't have uh, food stamps or where to get a reduction in your rent. And, and I think, Actually, the other shift that I'm really excited to explore is how do we nod to our audiences no more than we do? What we actually might need to do is connect them to each other to uplift everybody, right? And so that's kind of gives you another taste of what I'm trying to build. I, I, I want to talk a little bit more about um about you know reporting on such diverse communities and making sure that those nuances are there and I know Stefan had some questions on that but before we do that I, I want to ask one more question around objectivity and, and those standards it seems like the only way to ensure that you know some of these accounts that have been previously marginalized are really you know given you know at least equal consideration is by changing the representation of the newsroom and I think so one of the stats on the um, on yesterday's, I think it was yesterday or maybe Wednesday's panel um, was that you know newsrooms are still seventy seven percent non Hispanic white, 
Um, and I think once you go into the management ranks, it's probably um, that, that number probably gets worse. And, and, you know, Mitra, as someone who has been, you know, part of CNN's management, um, how effective do you feel like you've been to be able to get this point of view across? And do you feel like groups, you know, some of these more marginalized groups or traditionally marginalized groups are well represented? Mm -hmm. uh, so never well represented enough, right? I, I, I uh, concede it's a lonely existence to be a woman of color who's an executive in a media company. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, I, I think there's a few things to think about. Um, one, yes, we need to uh, solve for representation. Two, I think we need to more critically examine our mission, right? And um, and that you're seeing in a pretty public way, like the LA Times, for example, I believe two or three Sundays ago, published its own reckoning with its role in perpetuating racism, right? And what I appreciated about it, while parts of it felt like, you know, cer certainly parts of it felt perfunctory and like an exercise uh, that they, you know, that they had to go through, it is exactly that. Like you have to rec you have to reckon literally reckon with your role in getting us to where we are before there can be advancement and trust and community building. And so I think some of it's representation, but I also think some of it is let's examine our own history, let's rethink our own mission, and from here can we move forward. Um, and and the, one, the one thing I'll say about being among the few at the table is um, I've always fought as much for my own benefit as for the benefit of the organization for there to be more people at the table, right? So are we looking around and saying, uh-oh, this decision was all made by men or all white men or all white executives or all, like, are we looking to see who's missing and are we solving for that, not just with the addition of one person, but of a few people? Because I think that there's, through my career, when you're the only one, there's a massive burden. When you have another person in the room, you start to be able to back each other up. When you have three, you can start a revolution, right? Like when you have three people at the table, it's like nobody's going to ignore us even if they tried, right? And I, I think that's something that companies trying to achieve inclusion, um, you know, they'll say, oh, it's a pandemic, it's gonna take time, the economy's not great. I would actually encourage us to be similarly revolutionary in solving what got us there and, and, and thinking of almost like, how can you hire a critical mass or a cohort that can work together to achieve the representation that you're talking about? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I like that standard of three. I mean, we, we've been do doing a lot about representation in the PR industry, and we've been talking to a lot of organizations that are like, oh, our goal is to have one person of color in our leadership ranks by the end of the year. And we're like, no, you can't have just one. That's going to lead to tokenism, um, isolationism. I mean, there's a lot, you know, yeah, I think three is, is the number everyone should be striving for. Um, Stephen, did you want to ask a question about covering diverse, you know, covering communities in New York? Because I think when you and I chatted, you, you wanted to kind of bring that into the conversation. Yeah, no, I, just, I, um, I thought it was so interesting that, you know, you're, spoke, you're focusing um, specifically on Queens and focusing on New York City neighborhoods. You know, how, um, I'm just curious, neighborhood by neighborhood, how do you see those shifts happening in terms of 
format and content and tone. Um, and, and, you know, why is that important to you? Right. So I think that some of it is the nature of New York City neighborhoods. Some of it is this um, notion that actually came up in uh, the last debate about the end of New York City, which we can talk about. Oh, yes. and, then, uh, mm-hmm. and then I think um, it's just the pandemic. Like we all feel like we live in like a 10 or 20 block radius all of a sudden, right? So some of this has been forced on us. So, um, and, and maybe I should I should dwell on that first, which is, So New York City, um, if you live in a neighborhood like mine, may you be so fortunate in the middle of a pandemic, right? Now the heavy cases and the high death rate, of course, that the same factors that I love about our neighborhood, diversity, the coming and going, it's very dense, are the same factors that led this to be the epicenter of the epicenter for COVID, right? Having said that, over the last few months through the summer, the ability to walk to the grocery store and the florist and have people assemble, whether it's in my small backyard or even out on the street for a friend's birthday in a relatively safe way, the ability for someone to shut down as they did uh, the avenue in front of our house that now stretches for 30 blocks, right? And to essentially create and claim public spaces um, feels like a part of the New York that's emerging, right? Um, And I think that's really important for a dense neighborhood like this, the claiming of public space to be out and about. um, And, you know, every morning I walk the the, uh, 30 blocks back and forth, which is about like three miles. And it's just a great way to start my day because there's like, parts of gentrified Jackson Heights. Then there's the Bangladeshi section of Jackson Heights where you'll see like a little kid just learning how to walk. You'll see some teenagers that are on their skateboards and I'm like, are they getting that in before high school starts or, you know, what's happening here? Um, So, and then of course it's, you know, heavily Latino and it just feels like um, it's all out there. So there, there's something beautiful about that, that I see community building occurring in different ways as a result of the pandemic, right? I think that's one piece. And then the overlapping areas of the city, the thing is, I think we all still identify as New Yorkers, right? My doctor's in Manhattan, my colleagues are in Manhattan, like Manhattan is kind of our commercial center. And yet in the middle of a pandemic, as we've seen with um, kind of what areas of the city are resurgent and which are not, Manhattan's not necessarily the place you want to be because that is our center of commerce. It's not necessarily going to offer the, uh, what I'm describing in Queens, which is like a great place to be with your family and neighbors and friends through a pandemic. Um, So I think the other piece is what I'm getting at with local news into global news is that New York in many ways also has this interconnectedness that you know you just said there are elements of what you're describing from queens that i identify with from having lived in harlem where are my people at right i feel comfortable here because this is there's something about this neighborhood where i don't have to explain myself to people right i don't need to tell you what veneer is or why i want this part of a goat or what, you know, like, what is that what you know, I literally yeah. need to say, I don't have to explain yeah. myself. And that's, and that's kind of a beautiful thing too. Um, and then the, the part of 
New York being over, I think is super interesting because who better than immigrants to redefine both themselves and their neighborhoods, right? You know, there's um, a t-shirt that says like, I'm my ancestors' wildest dreams. I'm sure you've been <laughs> right? And I think I about that. that a lot during COVID because mm -hmm. I'm like, we're all complaining, but like, you know, where we come from, they didn't know where they were going to be tomorrow. <laughs> like it has been, mm -hmm. there's a lot of struggle it took for people to get to this place. Um, surely we can figure this out. And I think that sense of redefinition and resilience is, I don't think it's unique to New York. I'm sure you see elements of it in Austin. I'm sure you see elements of it in San Francisco. But I do think that immigrants have an ability to know it's okay to perhaps never go back to what was and to just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I, I think about that a lot as the driving kind of unifying piece of our little newsletter that we launched. As, as lofty as that thought is, I, I really do think of that as um, a bit of our, it kind of baked into our mission, if you will. So, so that made me think about a lot of the, um, the stories that have been circulating, at least amongst my friends when the pandemic hit about being, because I, you know, I have a five-year-old, you, know, you know, being a working mom with the pandemic and how like every article had this tone of like, it's the end of the world and our children are sitting next to us while we're working. And, and contrasting that to what you're saying about the immigrant community and, and the sense of resiliency and just moving forward. And, and I mean, I don't know, like just even reconciling those two points of view, um, it's kind of tricky because on one hand, yes, I mean, there is this part of me that has tried to remember that, oh my gosh, like, you know, my dad is an immigrant, walked, I mean, he really walked three miles at night in Detroit to a job so that he could pay for college. And here, like, you know, the idea of like working with our child sitting next to us, but, but at the same time, I don't want to minimize that struggle, right? Because it was hard. I mean, we weren't used to having our children next to us while we were trying to do our full-time jobs. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so it's, you know, it's like validating all of these experiences, right? I think both things can be true, right? So we have a partnership with the Haitian Times Epicenter, the newsletter does. And what I love about that partnership is that kind of every week when I'll send, we'll build, they'll either request or we'll send them items. And both things can 100% be true that you need rent relief in your life, but you also want to find a green spot in New York City where you can go for a hike, mm -hmm. right? And I worry that our version of identity and our version of coverage of communities tends to be you know, somewhat either overly simplistic or in the realm of charity versus, this is why I keep kind of using the phrase uplift, right? Which is both of those actions of me helping you figure out how to pay your rent and me helping you find a place to go hiking this weekend that, you know, won't break the bank or, you know, or you can get to on public transportation somehow. To me, both of those actions are uplifting an individual and potentially a community. Mm -hmm. um, and I would like to create media that recognizes exactly what you're describing, which is I can be facing a certain struggle because my child is five and about to barge in on my call. And, you know, that's like the balance and there's something universal about that. 
but also people work damn hard for me to get to this place, which is why the stakes are pretty high, right? And I also, you know, and then we move to what does the world look like for said five-year-old, right? And what's our role in creating a version of media, companies, workplaces, democracies, the world? Like, I mean, you could keep going with it that is... Um, that's uplifting that five-year-old, right? Like, and I, I think, I think that's, you know, I, I don't think that's too, again, I've used the word lofty for right now. Cause you know, guess what? We're in the middle of a pandemic. Our economy is being uh, rethought literally. Um, and maybe there's a chance at reinvention. You know, I, I don't think, I do think it is the immigrant who knows it's really hard to go back to exactly what was. I, I love that, that reinvention. In fact, even with our industry and stuff, and I think we've talked about this as well, there are the industry leaders who are obsessed with, like, they just want to go back to 2019. That's all they want. They want their teams back in the office. They just, they just want to, you know, they want, they just want to rewind. And I always say to them, this is such a huge opportunity to reinvent what wasn't working in the workplace. You know, like why not use this as an opportunity to innovate? And, um, and I just think it's really, it's, it's never effective to just try to push the hands of time. Right. I mean, that never works. Um, so I, I know we have to wrap up soon and I did want to make sure that, you know, given, given your role at, at CNN digital that we did talk a little bit about disinformation and how social media is impacting, um, you know, the, the proliferation of, you know, things like the New York Post story and, you know, like how, like what role do you think that social channels should play mm -hmm. in online news? And um, I'd love to get, and I don't know if you can talk about this, but I'd love to get your take on, on how Twitter and Facebook handled the New York Post story. And, um, you know, initially they were very strict about it and then they ended yep. up kind of loosening. Um, and Stefan, did you want to add anything to that? Because I know you and I chatted about this as well. No, I just, I, you know, it's so interesting. You were talking earlier so much about the, um, you know, the principles and the structure of journalism, and it almost seems at odds with one, you know, the the New York Post uh, situation, and also just how people seem to be consuming news or what they think is news. Uh, a friend of mine just sent a bunch of memes that were outlandish from their crazy uncle to me, and that sort of it seems to be what he's in taking as, as news and information. So, you know, um, I just wonder, you know, what you think of that dichotomy and, and sort of how uh, you're handling it with, with both your organizations. Sure, sure. So um, the crazy uncle is real, right? I think the crazy uncle is in many ways um, at the crux of the problem because, and it actually does relate to representation because if you think about why people are looking at what their crazy uncle posts, it's because they have a relationship with their uncle, right? Like there is literally an affinity or relationship with the person posting. And I think that's something else for brands and media to think about is how personal have we gotten to our users so that there is this affinity, trust, or even the willingness to read or stop and see what is being said. And I think for many of us, the answer would be actually, maybe we haven't done the best job of engagement beyond, please subscribe to our product, please buy our product, please, please, please. Like it's kind of, we're on our hind legs with the consumer versus um, 
you know, what is the, what is the core of the relationship, right? What is the affinity that, and I think brands 100% are going through this in the pandemic because they're exactly rethinking that relationship, especially if you can't, you know, fly, consume, you know, uh, travel, do the things that may be at the core of some of, some of the, um, the, the products, but just getting around to the platforms and, and the New York post, um, piece that you're alluding to, I think what you saw was oddly well-intentioned, but it, it it's unfortunate that it showed up on a specific story like that. And by that, I mean, these, these um, platforms have really not owned their role as publisher. They have literally said, we are platforms. Um, the way that it works is the freedom of speech that we give you know, the Breitbarts and Ben Shapiro's and Black Lives Matter of the world have everything to do with the creation of platforms that are democratized and open. And they've used the free speech um, argument as to explain why they allow certain things to uh, prevail on the platforms, right? Then you get to questionable information and it's just blocked, right? Mm -hmm. And I would argue there's a transition from one to the other, which might be, hey guys, do you want to accept your role as publisher? Is it time to say, we take responsibility for the information on our platforms and here's how we are dealing with it. And I think that's the missing step um, from, the plethora of, you know, whether it's Proud Boys or QAnon or, you know, like the plethora of we must have free speech versus actually we're privately held company or we're private companies, maybe right. publicly traded, but we're, and we get to decide what's on our platform, just like I get to decide who comes in my house and who doesn't, right? That's right. right. So I, I think that's the transition that we're missing um, in this space. And I worry that the absence of that discussion, which is like, again, like see some previous things I've said, like that's a much more nuanced discussion. That's a much harder discussion. But in the process, the Facebooks and Twitters of the world will have to figure out what are we to our users and what can you count on us for, right? They have, instead of being the crazy uncle, I think they need to figure out what's their, what's their own evolution to not be the crazy uncle. Right. I, I'm going to ask one last question before we wrap up. Um, you know, this, there's this instinct I've seen to um, categorize news now as, as, you know, towards some sort of partisan leaning. And, and I think that's also created a problem where, where everything supposedly, so I'll, I'll just use an example. We um, had a piece of sponsored content sent to us and they refer to CNN as a left-leaning publication. And, and then they refer to, I, I don't remember the right, it may even Breitbart or something as a right-leaning. And I sent it back to them and I said, I'm not going to put, this is a false equivalency. I just, I'm not going to, we can't do this. Um, CNN, and, and they really did fight with me that, you know, according to their research, CNN is a left-leaning publication. And I had a really big issue with that. And I said, I, I don't think that's, it's just not a fair categorization. I, and, and I'm just curious from the conversations you have internally, because I've seen this elsewhere, right? I mean, we're, we, these news publications that used to be considered to be fairly, again, I don't want to say neutral because that they obviously weren't. Um, but, you know, the, this instinct to sort of categorize them as left or right, and do we, do we need to keep doing that? And, and what are the conversations you all had internally about this idea that CNN was left-leaning? 
So they should look up my um, voting records because I'm an independent. I'm not <laughs> registered in a party, which in New York is like really saying something. Um, so I, I think the way that I address this internally is as follows, that if we ever perceive ourselves as oppositional to the president, we are not doing our jobs. So if, the, if we start to take his bait, right, which is to some extent what you're saying, right, yeah. characterizing CNN as the other side, the left, the, you know, again, this um, kind of almost binary construct right. we keep putting on things when the answer is very complicated. And so the minute that we become adversarial or oppositional to the president, then I think we cease doing our job as journalists. And this 100% gets to the heart of representation and why it matters. Because our job, whether it's at a White House press conference or on the homepage of CNN.com or when you turn on the television, our job is to represent the people, right? The job of the journalist is literally to represent the people who could not be at the White House press conference the people whose views should be setting the news agenda, um, and also whose views you, hopefully, when you turn on the television, you see a range of, right? As opposed to um, one side over the other side. And that's been my message for the, you know, I've been at CNN for more than four years, and I've really stuck to that message because it feels so fundamental to how we move forward from this. Um, it feels so fundamental to not taking the bait and being sure that our purpose is driven by something much greater than ourselves, which is, I'll use lofty for the third time, but, you know, the future of American democracy in so many ways. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, there are follow-up questions that I could have to that, but I, I'm mindful of time, so I'm going to wrap up here. So thank you so much, Mitra. I mean, I, this is one of the most interesting conversations I've had in a while about media um, and the future. And I would love to have you back at some point once you have your new venture uh, you know, launched and, and, and rolling um, to talk a little bit more about these issues that I think need to be talked about often. That's great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And thank you, Stefan. Thank you for bringing your perspective as well. This was Intersection. And um, we will be back soon with another, another episode. Thank you for listening to the Provoke Media Intersection series brought to you by Provoke Media and Pray Tell with production support from Marketeers.